think that's it. Good. Let me pray for us, and we will begin a new book tonight, 1 Samuel. Let me pray for us. Our Father, thank you for your word. Uh, you caused it to be written. Uh, you caused it to be preserved. Your spirit takes it and communicates it to us. It is an amazing living document that continues to encourage us and challenge us. And as Ben reminded us this morning, it helps us to see you and who you are and helps us to see us and who we are. Thank you for your word. We love you, your word and we pray your spirit would take everything that is yours and communicate it to us uh, in a personalized way tonight. Just what we need to hear to encourage us and challenge us to take our next step. So thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. We love you, and we pray for all these things this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start off this evening by telling you about a friend of mine. His name is Dave. Uh, Dave is with the Lord now, as is his wife. Uh, but when Laurie and I moved to Sacramento, which was in 1986, yes, So we got married in July of 85, yep, July of 85, in fact, July 26th, we just had our anniversary, 38, uh, so a year later, we're in Sacramento, and we, we found a church, and we had, we had thought, um, if there was anything we could do, uh, we would work with the students. So we showed up at the students' thing on a, on a Sunday night, and just basically, because it was our first time there, we just kind of basically stood around in the back, just kind of watching, like, oh my gosh, <laughs> there's a lot of students, and whew, uh, there's a lot going on here, which was a fantastic thing. Uh, and so then at the end of that time, of, I don't know if it's a couple hours or whatever, uh, Dave and his wife Lou, L-U, Lou, uh, at least Dave was there that night, he walked up to me and he said, uh, hi, I'm Dave, and real friendly guy. And uh, I said, hi, I'm Bill. And uh, I said, we just moved into town, you know, working at the rocket factory. He goes, great, great, great. Uh, where are you living? I'm like, well, slow down there, buddy. <laughs> What do you mean, where am I living? I don't even know who you are. And he's like, well, we can just, you know, we can have breakfast. You can come over. We hang out. We got a pool. Just uh, come on over. And he just stepped into our lives at a great time for someone to step into our lives uh, and wound up being a great, um, not perfect, <laughs> but godly leader for me and for my life. Um, he's, you would never, he, he doesn't have any billboards. He, he doesn't have a YouTube channel. Uh, he, does, he never wrote any books. But he led a life worth following. And he invited me to just walk along with him. And it had a big impact on my life. Just the fact that he would let me into his life and we would walk uh, in life together. 
So we're going to keep talking about what we talked about last week, and that is leading a life worth following. And that's what we're going to start off talking about in 1 Samuel. Leading a life worth following. 1 Samuel. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, Samuel and Kings, Samuel is just one book, and Kings is just one book. But when they decided to start um, translating the Old Testament, they divided it up into there's a first and a second Samuel, and there's a first and a second Kings. But there's really only Samuel and Kings. So Samuel, the book of Samuel, is about the monarchy. Remember the book of Judges? We took this little uh, rest stop last week with the book of Ruth, but we've been going through the book of Judges, spiral down, 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 and everyone was doing that which was right in their own mind because at that time there was no king in Israel. So what are they going to be looking for? A king. Samuel comes along and is in this transition period. He's the final judge. Um, we might run across the fact that Samuel might be a little put out that he's not um, voted in as king, <laughs> but that's at the end of the book. Uh, but he's living during this time of the transition from basically tribal leadership to a national nationalized leadership under a king. So this is the book of the monarchy. Some of the basics about this book. Who wrote it? I don't know. Samuel at least probably provided the majority of the information. Uh, I'm not sure Samuel wrote it. If he did, uh, he, he kind of highlights himself. <laughs> he kind of becomes the hero of the story. And so I don't think Samuel necessarily wrote the book, but he probably provided um, almost all of the information. When did it occur? It was during the lifetime of Samuel, but it may have been put together as late as after Solomon's time. This is all okay. Don't, oh my gosh, what? No, it's all okay. Somebody's assembling it, putting it together. And the reason that scholars think this is in 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 6. It says, so Achish gave him the town of Ziklag, gave it to David. So now there's this little parenthetical comment, which still belongs to the kings of Judah to this day. Now, why would this individual say belongs to the kings of Judah if they didn't also know there were kings of Israel, kings of Israel and kings of Judah in the divided kingdom. So it seems like it could have been put in its final form after the division, but before Israel is deported or taken away at least by Assyria. So maybe 931 to 722, somewhere in there, if you like those things and care. Where? Don't know. Uh, but probably finally compiled, possibly, uh, in Jerusalem, but it could have been anywhere else. We don't really know, and there's no internal or external information that really helps us 
in where this book was written. But the why it's written is very clear. The specific purpose of First and Second Samuel, remember Samuel, is to show that God's sovereignty was delegated to the nation Israel, especially through its line of divinely elected Davidic kings. David and his dynasty demonstrate what it means to rule under God. That's what the book of Samuel is about. Helping us to understand the rise of God's kings. So the book of Samuel, written at a time at the close of the period of Judges, complacency and compromise are rampant, spiritual lethargy and anarchy are pervasive, and defeat is everywhere. It's a time of transition in the book of Samuel, from no king to our king to God's king. So who is our king? Saul. Right? He was handsome, he was tall, and he's hiding in the suitcases. This is our king, the one we picked. But God has something better in mind, and that was David. And so the book of Samuel is going to tell us how all that came to pass. So this is a book that's got a lot of transition happening. It's also a time for new leadership. And these first seven chapters begin to highlight the necessity for a difference of leadership. So what we're given in these first seven chapters, the opening of the book of Samuel, talking about the monarchy, we're given two lives to compare and contrast. One is Eli and one is Samuel. One is Eli, he's the old man, and one is Samuel, he's the little boy. And what we learn in this is it's devotion to God, not position that matters to God. And it's obedience, not appearance, that matter most to God. Devotion and obedience outpace position or appearance. So we open up the book of 1 Samuel, the first seven chapters, with a life worth following. We've got a great, I hope you got a chance to read this. This is just a great, um, a great book. I love, um, love kind of some humor in here. Um, I kind of think the Bible writes people in a real way, not in sort of a Superman or Batman way. <laughs> like um, Elkanah, he's got two wives. The one he really loves, Hannah, uh, but she can't give him any children, so he's got another wife, which, okay, maybe he loves her too, not sure, but she gave him children. Now, at that time, that's how it went. Um, but I love what Elkanah says. Um, he says in verse 8 of chapter 1, Why are you crying, Hannah? She's crying because she doesn't have any children. 
Elkanah would ask, so why are you crying, Hannah? Elkanah would ask, why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you have no children? You have me. Isn't that better than having 10 sons? <laughs> well, Elkanah, evidently the answer is no, because <laughs> you've got another wife. So no, I'm not sufficient for you. It's just so funny. It's uh, such a man thing to say. We just... It's all right. I'm a man. I can say it. You have me. Isn't that better than having 10 sons? No. The answer, no, it is not. Oh, that's just funny. It's funny to me. But I have a strange sense of humor. Uh, so anyway, Hannah uh, comes up one time and she starts praying. And Eli is sitting at his customary place. Uh, verse 10, Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. And she made this vow, O Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime. And as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. Oh, who else's hair was never supposed to be cut? Ooh, <laughs> okay. So there's a little bit of thing going on here with Samson. As she was praying to the Lord, Eli watched her. Seeing her lips move, but hearing no sound, he thought she had been drinking. Must you come here drunk, he demanded. Throw away your wine. Oh no, sir, she replied. I haven't been drinking wine or anything stronger, but I am very discouraged. And I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. I don't think I'm a wicked woman, for I've been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. In that case, Eli said, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the request you have asked of him. Oh, thank you, sir, she exclaimed. Then she went back and began to eat again. She was no longer sad. So, you know the story. She, uh, God uh, looks favorably on her, and they have a child. And she sings this amazing prayer, uh, song. Um, there's some things where she's taken a little bit of some jabs at Peniah. Um, but what's a good song without some angst in it, you know? It's got to have some stuff, I guess. So Elkanah returns home to Ramah without Samuel, and the boys serve the Lord by assisting Eli the priest. And so now we get into, whew, okay, here comes Eli's household. We've seen Samuel's household, and now we're seeing Eli's household. Now the sons of Eli were scoundrels who had no respect for the Lord or for their duties as priests. Uh, this is not good. <laughs> Whenever anyone offered a sacrifice... Eli's sons would send over a servant with a three-pronged fork. While the meat of the sacrificed animal was still boiling, they weren't supposed to handle it yet, the servant would stick the fork into the pot and demand that whatever it brought up be given to Eli's sons. All the Israelites who came to worship at Shiloh were treated this way. Sometimes the servant would come even before the animal's fat had been burned on the altar. He would demand raw meat before it had been boiled so that it could be used for roasting. 
The man offering the sacrifice might reply, take as much as you want, but the fat must be burned first. He's actually trying to be obedient. Uh, then the servant would demand, no, give it to me now or I'll take it by force. So the sin of these young men was very serious in the Lord's sight, for they treated the Lord's offerings with contempt. Here comes little Samuel. He's got his little garment, his little robe. Um, now Eli was very old, verse 22, but he was aware of what his sons were doing to the people of Israel. He knew, for instance, that his sons were seducing the young women who assisted at the entrance of the tabernacle. Uh, this is not good. <laughs> Eli said to them, I've been hearing reports from all the people about the wicked things you're doing. Why do you keep sinning? You must stop, my sons. The reports I hear among the Lord's people are not good. If someone sins against another person, God can mediate for the guilty party. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede? But Eli's sons wouldn't listen to their father. For the Lord was already planning to put them to death. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew taller and grew in favor with the Lord and with the people. Sound like anybody else you've heard? There's definitely an allusion in the New Testament to the Lord and how Samuel was growing and how the Lord was growing. Okay. So one day, a man of God came to Eli and tells him some bad news. Uh, and he says that he's going to cut off uh, Eli's branch of the priests. Uh, verse 35 of chapter 2, Then I'll raise up a faithful priest who will serve me and do what I desire. I will establish his family. And they will be my priests to my anointed kings. Oh, there it is. My anointed kings forever. Then all your surviving family will bow before him begging for money and food. Please, they will say, give us jobs among the priests so we will have enough to eat. Samuel goes to bed that night. Dreams and visions hadn't been around. And so God begins speaking to Samuel. Samuel doesn't know who it is. So he keeps running to Eli. Finally, Eli goes, oh, I wonder if this is the Lord. So he says, go back and say, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. And so the Lord does speak to Samuel, and he says in verse 11 of chapter 3, then the Lord said to Samuel, I'm about to do a shocking thing in Israel. I'm going to carry out all my threats against Eli and his family from beginning to end. I have warned him that judgment is coming upon his family forever because his sons are blaspheming God, and he hasn't disciplined them. So I have vowed that the sins of Eli and his sons will never be forgiven by sacrifices or offerings. Samuel stayed in bed until morning. I bet he did, with the blanket up over his head. He's afraid to tell Eli what the Lord had said to him. But Eli says, tell me, and may God, this is a little boy, and may God strike you and even kill you if you hide anything from me. Ah, Eli, <laughs> uh, don't hold anything back. So Samuel told him everything. It is the Lord's will, Eli replied. Let him do what he thinks best. 
So Samuel, you begin to see this contrast between Samuel and Eli and the people, how they respond to Samuel versus how they've responded to Eli. And so Samuel, a few things, just some observations. We have the impact of godly parents, not perfect parents, <laughs> but godly parents. He seems to have had a godly father, and First Chronicles talks about that just a little bit. We know that he had a praying mother, and they gave God their best. Now, their best was Samuel, but they gave him to the Lord. So there was an impact of godly parents. There was a growing influence of his own dedicated life. He's got an attentive spiritual ear. He has an obedient will. He has a humble heart, and he has a godly walk. And everyone in Israel began to see it. Eli, on the other side, judged for 40 years. And his story kind of comes to us in this, the next couple of chapters here. The Philistines are in battle against the Israelites. Now, what should the Israelites have been doing? Praying and asking God to help. I mean, the Philistines are definitely enemies. These are enemies. And they should have prayed and asked God, especially under the direction of Eli. They should have prayed and asked God, won't you help us please fight the battle, help us take care of the enemies. But instead, they go fight them themselves. They keep losing and what do they decide to do? We know what we'll do. We'll go get the Ark of the Covenant, and we'll parade it in front of us. Now, do you remember uh, Leviticus? Uh, you remember Numbers? This is not how it's supposed to work. It's not a rabbit's foot. Uh, it's not like Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, where they open that big giant book, and there's Mr. Spock is there with the, you know, with the Ark of the Covenant and beams of rays or something are shooting out from it. That's really not how it worked. <laughs> they were supposed to, there would be a holy war, and so the Lord would go into battle with them in the seated above the Ark of the Covenant. That's kind of his throne. So they were, if they would have done it God's way, perhaps, I think, God would have smiled and the Philistines would have been eradicated. But that's not what happened. They decide to use it like a rabbit's foot. So they parade this thing out there. And they're, yeah. It's like a Taylor Swift concert, right? It's registering 2.3 on the, on the earthquake meter. I mean, the ground is shaking. The Israelites are so happy and excited because they've got their rabbit's foot out there now. And what do the Philistines do? Ah! <laughs> what are we going to do? So they go, we've got to fight like men. So they fight uh, as if their lives depend on it. And 30,000 Israelite soldiers died that day. I mean, that's a lot of people. The survivors turned and fled to their tents. The ark of God was captured, and Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were killed. This is a bad day for Israel. Now, a man from the tribe of Benjamin ran from the battlefield and arrived at Shiloh later that same day. 
uh, Eli was waiting beside the road to hear the news of the battle, for his heart trembled for the safety of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, that's okay to be worried about that. That's kind of his job. No mention about his sons. When the messenger arrived and told what happened, an outcry resounded throughout the town. What's all the noise about? Eli asked. The messenger rushed over to Eli, who was 98 years old and blind. Now, we've run across another blind person. Remember Isaac and his blindness? Not only was physical blindness, but it was telling us that he had lost sight of God and his word. Who else has blindness here? Eli. Okay? Uh, he's 98 and he's blind and he's leaning back in his chair. I've just come from the battlefield. I was there this very day. What happened? Eli demands. Israel has been defeated by the Philistines, the messenger replied. The people have been slaughtered and your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were also killed. And the ark of God has been captured. When the messenger mentioned what had happened to the ark of God, Eli fell backward from his seat beside the gate. He broke his neck and died, for he was old and overweight. He had been Israel's judge for 40 years. Uh, his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant. She hears what happens. She goes into labor. She dies, but she has a baby boy. Um, and she didn't seem to care about that. She names him Ichabod, which means where is the glory, uh, for Israel's glory is gone because the ark is captured. Um, her father-in-law is dead, her husband is dead, and the ark of the covenant is gone. And this is a no good, very bad, horrible, awful day. All under Eli's watch. So for 40 years, Eli has been judging Israel. He's been like a museum curator. The tabernacle at Shiloh would have had all the pieces, right, that they made in the desert, would have had all the pieces, and he might have even said, you'll notice on your left, the... Uh, candlestick, you'll notice on the right the table of showbread. If you continue this way, you'll see the, uh, the bread, and you'll see the altar of incense. And behind this curtain is the Ark of the Covenant. I can see him taking tours. <laughs> but there's no power, there's no God of power involved anymore. He's just pointing to these cool relics saying, look at what we used to be. Look at who we used to be and what God used to do for us. Isn't this amazing? Isn't this interesting? Isn't this beautiful? But the idea that God was living and active and still at work seems to have escaped Eli. Horrible, this next sentence. His self-indulgence. He couldn't lead himself. We are very clearly given the impression Samuel could lead himself even from a little boy, as a little boy. Eli, who's 98, he's, he's a sage. He's got wisdom. 
Eli cannot lead himself. And one of the causes of his death is that his self-indulgence wound up, in a sense, killing him. The fact of his neglect toward his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, he seems to have been um, verbally, he seems to have said, don't do this anymore, boys. Now you stop it. I don't like what you're doing anymore. But he never went any farther with it. He should have taken them out of the priesthood. He should have really gotten after them. He didn't. So he, he rebukes them, but he's not disciplining them as the Lord would have had. And the neglect of the truth about the ark. If anyone should have known it wasn't a rabbit's foot, it should have been Eli. Eli should have been saying, what are you guys doing? You can't just walk in there and get the ark. You, you just don't do that. That's not what it is. That's not what it's for. But he didn't stop them. Now, maybe he couldn't stop them. I don't know. That's just as bad. They take off with the ark, and Eli is left at home, waiting to hear what happens to it. So the fact of his neglect, the fruit of his neglect, his sons don't honor or respect him, and the Lord is going to overthrow his house. And so Eli's life, the result of all of this, is there is a lack of spiritual influence from the person who should have been the most influential in the community, perhaps broader, perhaps even some nationally, the person who should have been an influencer wasn't. I, don't, I can't tell you what his real relationship with the Lord looked like, uh, but if it was once vital and vibrant, it was now pretty well dried up. So we've been given this picture of Samuel growing. We've been giving this, given this picture of Eli dying. Two different people, two different lifestyles. And either Eli's leadership left behind it a compromising people, a superstitious people, an abandoned people, kind of the meaning of Ichabod, an unchanged people. Truly, the Israelites were living as they pleased, yet believing God would favor them anyway. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30 says this. This is in the section on a warning for Eli's family. Chapter 2, verse 30. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I promised that your branch of the tribe of Levi would always be my priests, but I will honor those who honor me, and I will despise those who think lightly of me. Eli wound up being despised instead of being a person of spiritual influence. And so behind him, he leaves a defeated people. As he moves off the scene, his leadership has left nothing behind it. How about Samuel's leadership as we continue to 
read on in these chapters. Chapter 5, the ark goes to Philistia. The Philistines capture it. That doesn't work out so well for them. Um, Dagon falls on his face after a while, and and then come the um, the rats and the tumors, uh, and they go to different towns, and finally the people are going, please don't send that thing here. <laughs> and so they decide what they're going to do is they're going to hitch it up to a couple of new mother cows on a cart. Um, Now, where does a mother cow who's just given birth want to be? With the babies. Okay, so we're going to hook up the mother cows to the cart, and on it we're going to put some gold things. And if the cart goes back to where it belongs, then God was involved. But if it turns around and comes back to us, It was just coincidence. Do you see how they've stacked the deck? Because they've taken the babies and they've locked them up over here. (laughs) Where are the mama cows going to want to go? They're going to want to do a big U-turn and come back here, and they're going to go, see, just coincidence. But what happens instead? (laughs) The cows make a beeline. They get across the border, and then they're sacrificed um, to the Lord. Um, Some people look into the Ark of the Covenant, which that wasn't a smart idea, and they wind up dying. Uh, And so they finally wind up taking it to Kirith-Jerim because the Lord had killed 70 men from Beit Shemesh because they looked into the Ark of the Lord. Uh, And the people mourned greatly because what the Lord had done. Now, this is a good thing that's happening to them. This is the fear of the Lord. Who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, they cried out. Where can we send the ark from here? So they sent messengers to the people at Kirith-Jerim and told them, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come here and get it. (laughs) We're not bringing it to you. You come get it. So they came and they took it. Uh, And they took it in the correct way. Samuel says to all the people, time to get rid of your foreign gods. Time to get rid of the images of Asherah and Baal. Um, They keep coming up, Asherah and Baal. Um, They were... um, They were a couple. Uh, They lived... (laughs) You know, in wherever deities live, that's where they lived. And the reason Ashereth and Baal are important, one is a girl, one is a boy, um, they, uh, they were in charge of fertility. So as their fertility went... Um, the, the tangible expression of their fertility was rain. I'll let you think on that one. But Ashtoreth and Baal are huge throughout the whole Old Testament. Uh, 
these two run around and people are always trying to, to, if you're going to try and get it to rain, you are wanting Ashereth and Baal to And if they do, it'll rain. And if they don't, it won't rain. So your job is to help them. Mm. This is nothing like our God. Uh, so Samuel, what did Samuel's leadership leave behind it? So Samuel, he says... You, you got to get rid of these images of Ashereth and Baal. Uh, determined to obey only the Lord. I'm in chapter 7, verse 4. So the Israelites got rid of their images of Baal and Ashereth and worshipped only the Lord. Good job, Samuel. Then Samuel tells them, get together, I'll pray for you. They get together. Uh, the Philistine rulers hear that they've gathered together. And they decide this is a great time to go attack them. And so they do that. They start attacking. Samuel makes a sacrifice. The Lord answers. Just as Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines arrived to attack Israel. But the Lord spoke with a mighty voice of thunder from heaven that day. And the Philistines were thrown into such confusion that the Israelites defeated them. The men of Israel chased them from Mizpah to a place below Beit Kar, slaughtering them all along the way. Samuel then took a large stone and placed it between the towns of Mizpah and Jeshana. He named it Ebenezer, famous hymn. Yeah, you know, I've set up mine Ebenezer. Remember that? And you're like, what the heck is an Ebenezer? Here's the Ebenezer. Okay, Ebenezer, which means the stone of help or the stone of remembering. For he said, up to this point, the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and didn't invade Israel again for some time. And throughout Samuel's lifetime, the Lord's powerful hand was raised against the Philistines. The Israelite villages near Ekron and Gath that the Philistines had captured were restored to Israel, along with the rest of the territory that the Philistines had taken. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites, on the other side, in those days. Samuel continued as Israel's judge for the rest of his life. Each year, he traveled around, setting up his court, first at Bethel, then at Gilgal, and then at Mizpah. He judged the people of Israel. These are all little cities that are close in and around Jerusalem. Maybe 20, 25 miles away is the farthest, and maybe six miles is about the closest of these little cities. Uh, he judged the people of Israel each of these places. Then he would return to his home at Ramah, and he would hear cases there too. And Samuel built an altar to the Lord. At Rama. So, what has Samuel's? We we get a snippet as to the end toward the end of his life. What has his leadership left behind? First, a repentant people. He told them, "Get rid of your idols. Get rid of Ashereth and Baal, and obey only the Lord." So they confronted and rejected their idols, and they renewed their allegiance to the Lord. That's the first thing Samuel's leadership left behind it. He left behind them a consecrated people. They prayed, they sacrificed, drink, and burnt offerings. So he's leaving behind a people who know what to do and are doing it. 
He's left behind them a victorious people. They've had victory over their enemies. He's left behind them a spiritually wise people, 15 through 17, because he's judging them and helping them to discern right from wrong and good from evil. This is Samuel's leadership. Great contrast between Samuel's leadership and Eli's leadership that we're getting in these first few chapters. So how do we apply this? A life worth following. A life worth following. So let's start with the principles. A life worth following leaves behind it repentant people who confront their idols and Canaanites, as we've been talking about for months now, Canaanites in quotes, confront their idols and Canaanites, Canaanites from respectable sins, as a for example. Again, if you haven't gotten that book, I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, they leave the repentant people who renew their allegiance to the Lord alone. A life worth following leaves behind it consecrated people who pray to the Lord, who worship Him in spirit and in truth. Um, interesting on repentant and consecrated, if you remember Ben's message this morning where he talked about what theology are you building or confirming when I say I just want to live the way I want to live I'm going to build my own theology and I'm going to build a God that does that theology so that I'm within the bounds of my own theology versus who, who is God really and getting into his word and that was one of Ben's I thought fabulous exhortations get in the word be in it for the rest of your life this is where we learn about repenting. And repenting means I'm going this direction. I got to go this direction. I got to go 180 degrees because I probably have a wrong idea of God. If God thinks that if I, um, I don't know, whatever thing I think is right, if it isn't right, um, I don't need to change my God. I need to repent. <laughs> I need to go the other direction. I need to get in step with what God's word says, not the other way around. And a consecrated people says, I'm, I want that. Not only should I do that, I want to do that. I want to worship God in spirit and in truth. If you've heard me for very long, um, one of the things you know I like to say on Sunday is it's the best day of the week. Sunday is the best day of the week. Why? Because God's people are assembling to worship him in spirit and in truth. Spirit, please notice it has little s. It's not capital S, because that would be Holy Spirit. When Jesus says, such ones of the Father is seeking, those who worship him in spirit and truth, little s is like um, a cheerleader. Yay! <laughs> They're excited. They're excited to worship God. It's about, you know, you had those... Um, um, gosh, it was a long time ago. Pep rallies, right? You had a pep rally. And the whole thing was to get, kind of get worked up about the big game. There was a level of spirit and, and pride and all these kinds of things. And that's how God wants us to come to worship. He wants us to come to worship him in spirit and in truth. 
not so far spirit that we ignore truth and not so far in truth that we ignore spirit. We got to bring these two things together. This is what he wants from us and what he deserves every day of the week, but particularly on Sunday. So he leaves, Samuel leaves behind a repentant people. They know what's right and wrong. They know what their idols are, and they are abandoning the idols and just holding on to the Lord. They pray to the Lord. They worship him in spirit and in truth. He leaves behind a victorious people. They, they had victory over the Philistines. And he leaves behind a spiritually wise people. So what is a life worth following to you and to me? I'll try to boil it down to just a couple of slides here. First, a life worth following is a steward of its time. Are you regularly deepening your relationship with the Lord through the word and prayer? It starts with you. A life worth following is a steward of its time. It's also a steward of its talent. So one of the things that um, we've talked about before in here is your SHAPE. It's all capitalized because it's an acronym. S-H-A-P-E stands for spiritual gifts, heart, abilities, personality, and experiences. All these things together contribute to who you are and how God may want you to serve. So you know these things about yourself. Do you know areas that you might? The first and most important thing is to serve, and that's why Ben said, hey, if you don't know where to get started, come on and make disciples of children. Come on. And then while going, you can figure out, you know, I think I might like this a little bit better or a little bit more or whatever. Uh, you might not. You might actually fall in love with these kids, and I know several men who take them at whatever, like kindergarten or first grade, at kindergarten, and they go all the way through fourth grade with that group, and then they turn around and they do it again. Do you think that's going to have an impact? I do. So do they. Impacting the next generation for Christ in partnership with their parents fabulous ministry. So you say, well, that's not my shape. Uh, serve. <laughs> First and foremost, serve. Then continue to move toward your shape. How are you serving others? That's a, a steward of talent. A life not given away is a life squandered. It's a steward of its treasure. Are you striving to be a faithful steward of the resources God has entrusted to you? A life worth following is a steward of its tongue, what you're saying to and about others. A life worth following has become a bondservant of the living God. Have you given up both the control and the destination of your life to God? And like Samuel, a life worth following is involved in the lives of others. 
involved in the lives of others. Paul will just, uh, um, Paul. What's the guy who spoke this morning? Ben, talking about Paul. <laughs> he said, you know, Paul, we don't hear about Paul for 10 years. Kind of interesting. What is God doing with him? I don't know. Other than preparing him, I don't know. But when it's time, Paul comes out and gets involved in the lives of the disciples. A life worth following is involved in the lives of others. If you've been in this class before, this slide has not changed in probably 20 years. And it's something I need you to believe. You are already a leader. You say, well, if I knew a little bit more, then I would be a leader. No. And if I went to seminary, then I'd be a leader. No. If I had a little more experience, then I'd be a leader. No. You are already a leader. You demonstrate that because you're coming here. You love the word and you're coming because you want to continue to learn. You want to learn about God. You want to learn about yourself. You just love him and what he's doing. You are already a leader. You are not waiting. After tonight, you are, um, is it on the hook or not on the hook? Anyway, you leave here tonight on notice. You're a leader. You're a leader. After tonight's class, you are a leader. First, you're leading yourself. Great principle. I didn't make this up. Somebody said this, uh, but it is a great quote. You'll never lead anyone farther than you've led yourself. You'll never lead any, you don't lead from the back, you know, like with a stick. You, that's not how you lead. You lead from the front. You'll never lead anyone farther than you've led yourself. Husbands, you're leading your wives. Parents, you're leading your children. Employers, you're leading your employees. Home group leaders, you're leading those in your group. My friend Dave, who just stepped into my life and Lou into Laurie's life all those years ago, if you would have asked Dave, Dave, are you a leader? He would have said, well, I don't know. I don't care. He's just getting messy. He's just saying, come on, walk with me. He doesn't know me from anyone. But he reached out. What was the worst thing I could have said to him? No. No, I don't want to do that. Now, I know Dave better. Dave would not have taken that. <laughs> Dave would have said, no, you're wrong, <laughs> and here's what we're going to do. But Dave just took the risk, and he got involved in my life. He didn't really ask a bunch of permission. He just kind of launched himself in there, and I'm so grateful that he did. Every one of us should have at least one Timothy. Paul had several, but Paul had a Timothy, a younger man who he was investing in in particular ways. Uh, some of you are home group leaders. Some of you are small group leaders or table leaders at men's or women's ministry. 
yes. If you're not a home group leader, sign up. Get messy. Get involved in some people's lives. You are a leader. Get in there. Get in there and help them walk forward. Does that mean you don't have any more to grow? No, it does not mean that. <laughs> Get in there with them and just start walking. Every Christian should have at least one Timothy. Same sex person. So I need to have a young man. You older ladies need to have a younger woman. Get involved in somebody's life. don't know if I can make that any clearer. Get involved in somebody's life. You say, I don't have time. I'm sorry, you need to adjust your priorities. What did Jesus tell us? Go and make disciples. Teaching them, baptizing them, about everything I commanded you. These are not my words. These are Jesus' words. <laughs> and people are smart. They go, well, the main, the main verb there is make disciples. Gotcha. And it means while going. You know, while going, make. Great. While going, make some disciples. <laughs> Off you go. While going, go. Where can you find someone to walk with? I don't know but I'll bet they're right around you. I bet you aren't going to have to look very far. What are you going to have to do? Take a risk and invite yourself <laughs> kindly and graciously into their life. You can do this. It's like Home Depot. You can do it. We can help. <laughs> As Cody's been reminding us, breaking down the Great Commission, be, be a disciple, make, a disciple, and reach those who do not know or walk with Jesus. Be, make, reach. That's what this is. Get involved in somebody's life. Get a Timothy. How long will it last? I don't know. Um, our relationship with Dave and Lou lasted until, <laughs> until the Lord took them home. Was that last year, honey? So that's, what was that? 2022, so it's 37 years our relationship with them lasted. Sometimes it was, it was in the same neighborhood, and sometimes it was across the country, but the relationship continued. Big impact Dave had in my life, and you can have that impact in somebody else's life too. You can. You can. Believe me. If you don't believe yourself, believe me. You can do this. You are a leader. You are living lives worth following right now. Lead someone tomorrow. You are qualified. You are available. What do you need to do? Pray and ask God. But don't hide behind that. Well, I'm just going to wait till he tells me what to do. You should pray. But if you're waiting a month from now, 
if I come over to your house and you buy me dinner, I'm going to ask you, who's your Timothy? Who are you building into? Who are you sharing life with? You can. You need to. We all do. You are living lives worth following. Lead someone tomorrow. Let me pray for us. Oh, next week. Read 1 Samuel 8 through 15. Woo-hoo-hoo, this gets good. 8 through 15. Read 8 through 15, and we'll talk our way through it next week. Father, thank you. Thank you for the life of Samuel. Thank you for the life of the greater Samuel, our Lord Jesus. Uh, thank you for the way that he invested in a circle of men who changed the world. Um, Father, I don't have any designs to, um, or, or even aspirations to change the world, uh, but I know that we all need a Timothy. And if we don't have one, would you bring one into our lives? Someone that we can just walk with. Maybe it's for um, just a few months. Maybe it's someone who will turn out uh, much differently and really will be a Timothy for us in every way. Um, we trust you. We are ready to go. Uh, we're still feeling a little tentative, but we know that your spirit will enable us and help us. And so I pray that you would um, bring a Timothy into each of our lives in this next month. Uh, we even ask you for it, please, and pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next week.